Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. You've picked a good day to join us. God wants to do something new in you today. And since we grow best in community, we get the privilege of being a part of what that new thing is, whatever it is. God is always good. So even though none of us might know what that new thing is, we can trust that His perfect work will make you more like Jesus. And since that's what we're all about, let's count today in the win column of your spiritual journey. And mine. Speaking of which, I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. People grow here because that team loves to encourage and challenge people just like you to trust Jesus with more of your life. More today than yesterday, more tomorrow than today. If you're visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We're a church of good old regular people, people trying to clean up their messy lives one step in the right direction at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to be in process, figuring it out. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey. Even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on, this is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Well, welcome to the final week of our series, Wired, Brain Science and Spiritual Growth. Here at Dayspring, we are a people who grow. People grow here. That's just a part of our group identity. Uh, At some point in our lives, we decided that we would take our cues from Jesus. Uh, That decision launched us on a journey to align our character with the character of Jesus. And since complete alignment with Jesus will never completely happen on this side of eternity, that means that we'll always be growing, aligning, forming our character to Jesus. Also here at Dayspring, we are a people who believe in excellence. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.17 tells us that whatever we do or say, we should do or say for the glory of God. And then a few verses down in verse 23, he tells us to work diligently as if we were working for the Lord. So we are a people who believe in excellence because we believe that our boss, God, deserves the very best of our efforts. We bring our best to the table. If you put these two identity statements together, we are a people who bring our best to the journey of aligning our character to the character of Jesus. We want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just some of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the the last four weeks, we've been learning how God hardwired us to grow. And we have the advances in neuroscience or brain science over the past few decades to thank for giving us a more complete picture about how character formation occurs in the brain. 
Uh, thanks to brain imaging technology, we now know that everything that enters the brain enters on the back right side and then processes to the front right side of the brain before crossing over to the left front side of the brain and finally to the left back side of the brain. Everything takes this route. The left side of the brain is the home of conscious thought and processes information at the supercomputer speed of five times per second. However, the right brain is even more powerful and faster. It processes at the super, super computer speed of six times per second. And since the right side of the brain has access to data before the left side of the brain, it is the home of our pre-conscious thoughts or our gut instinct, if you will. Which means if you think this through rationally, which is a left brain function, the right brain, the right side of our brain is operating in the present and the left side is operating in the past. The journey to align our character with Jesus' character is a journey to instinctively in the present act like Jesus in every situation. By the time any situation gets to the left side of our brain, it's too late. It's already in the past. Now think about it like this. You hit your thumb with a hammer. You have an immediate gut response. By the time your left brain is even aware that you hit your thumb with a hammer and time has time to process, it's too late. Your gut response has already revealed your character alignment. You either acted like Jesus or didn't. I, I know it's kind of a humorous way to look at it, but life is filled with moments like this. Moments where you just respond instantly like Jesus or not. When your spouse says something that ticks you off. When a driver cuts you off in traffic. When you find out you're getting promoted at work. How you respond instantly in all of those moments either aligns with Jesus or it doesn't. And as Christ followers, you know what we want the answer to be. Now, if you've missed any of the messages in this series so far, I want to encourage you to listen to or watch them later. We've covered too much ground to recap everything today. And uh, even if you have caught all the messages, uh, you might want to go back and watch them again to help move them from your short-term memory to your long-term memory. This is life-changing information that is too important to just let slide by. You can also get the book we've based this series on. It's titled The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. They've done a fantastic job of laying out what we've spent the last few weeks discovering. They get all of the credit for what we're learning. I've simply adapted it to our context and added my own twist. So character formation is a right brain driven process. Since the right side of our brain is where all of our relationships and emotions are managed, that makes the process of character formation a community journey, not a solo journey. We are on this journey together. Alignment with Jesus' character requires other people, which makes sense, really. Uh, we're building a relationship with Jesus that is expressed through love. 
And since Jesus told us that loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength was expressed through loving our neighbors, and then later told us to love others the same way that he loved us, we grow in community with our people. And we grow best when the relational soil of our community has been fertilized with four nutrients. The first nutrient we discovered was joy. Real joy is the gateway to character formation. Real joy is what we feel when we see someone else's eyes, someone else's face light up communicating that they are glad to be with us. That feeling sets off a joy chain reaction in your brain that works its way through our entire body, priming us for character formation. The second nutrient of healthy relational soil is hesed. Hesed is an Old Testament Hebrew word that communicates deep, life-giving relationships of love. The kind of relationships where you are known almost better than you know yourself. I've got five or six relationships with people who don't ever wonder how I might respond to this or that or what I might be feeling about something in any given moment. Our relationships are deep enough that they just know that is hesed. The best kind of hesed is built with people who aren't exactly where you are spiritually. You want your people to include people who are further along on their spiritual journey and lesser along on their spiritual journey. Because your relational brain learns how to be like Jesus by taking pictures of how your people act in various situations. So you need people to learn from and people who can learn from you. The third nutrient of good relational soil is a strong, healthy group identity. A strong, healthy group identity defines how my people act in various situations. The orbital prefrontal cortex on the right side of our brain is the identity center of our brains. And it shapes our inner character through group identity. Basically, every one-sixth of one second, it tries to answer the questions, who am I and how do my people act now? Very few of the actual group identity statements that the prefrontal cortex uses have been articulated like the ones I mentioned earlier. You know, we are a people who grow spiritually. We are a people who bring our best to every situation. Much of our group identity is extrapolated through our joy-filled Hesed relationships. Our brains do a pretty good job of figuring out how our people act now automatically which is why we want our group identity to be healthy and strong and have integrity. But there is still one more necessary nutrient in good relational soil. Because we are still broken people on a journey, even in joy-filled Hesed relationships, we can fail to act with, in alignment with the character of Jesus. We call that sin. Our group identity can break down and we stop acting like ourselves, which is the chosen royal people of God. We forget who we are 
and we act out of character. The fourth nutrient in good relational soil provides healthy correction when our group identity has broken down, when it has malfunctioned. When there is a malfunction, we need to be corrected. Healthy correction is a necessary component of spiritual formation. Now, before we get to the why healthy correction is a necessary component of spiritual formation, we need to take a look at what character looks like in the brain. According to Jim and Michael, the authors of The Other Half of Church, character is the intersection of our identity and our values. It's who we are and how we act. And in the brain, those two things, identity and values, come together in the prefrontal cortex. Our prefrontal cortex is the home of two libraries. The first library contains our life history of every way we've seen someone else act in various situations. For example, let's say I grew up with a dad who would yell at me whenever I made a mistake. His response gets stored in my library of possible ways for me to respond in similar situations. And then, let's just say, in my first job, I had a boss who would use my mistakes as an opportunity to show me how much smarter he was than me. His response gets stored in my library. And then, let's just say, in college, I had a roommate who just didn't care when he made a mistake. He just laughed it off. That response gets stored in my library. And then, in this completely made-up example, my wife rolls her eyes at me whenever I make a mistake. <laughs> and her response gets stored in my library. It also stores responses that I have seen in movies and on TV and in culture and from you, my people. So this first library is filled with example after example of responses that I have seen from other people in various situations. The second library contains the values of our people. So character is the combination of our known responses, what we've seen other people do from the first library, and then in the second library, our values, which are what our people prefer to do. So when we're faced with a situation, our brain scans both of these libraries to form our spontaneous or instinctive behavior or our gut, re gut reaction, that instinct that we've been talking about when you hit your, your thumb with a hammer. The prefrontal cortex looks at that library of responses that we've seen from others and eliminates the ones that are contrary to our values. And when it finds ex examples of responses that match the values of my people, it finds the winning combinations. It is always looking for the least harmful option to my people. So let's just say that we are doing something together and you make a mistake. My brain is going to cross-check cross -check what I've seen with what our people prefer to do when someone makes a mistake. And I'm probably going to laugh off your mistake because it's the least harmful option to my people. 
That's the best choice available that fits both libraries. Now, going back to my example where I make a mistake. Let's say I am in joy-filled, said community with strong values and I make a mistake. And this time, my friend pats me on the shoulder as he tells me that it's no big deal. And he lovingly shows me how to fix my mistake. This creates a cognitive dissonance in my brain. This new response isn't something I've ever seen before. And my brain begins to update both libraries. And my character begins to change. Now I have a new least harmful response for next time. This is why it's so important to be careful about who you make your people. Can you see where we've been wrong about this? We've thought that character is defined by knowing the truth of God's word and the choices we make. So when we see a flaw in someone's character, we think, well, they don't understand God's teaching and are making bad choices. While it's true that choices were involved, that perspective is a left-brain understanding of character. True character flows out of the values and stored examples in our prefrontal cortex. And if we want to improve behavior, we have to update those two libraries, which is done from community and our group identity. And this illustrates why we need people in our people who are more mature than us. Doing life with them and seeing how they respond to situations updates our libraries. And it's why we need to hear about the values of our community. Again, that's what updates our library of values. Jim and Michael write, character is a collection of observed responses to various life situations that is quickly filtered through the options that my people value. The possibilities are ranked according to what would be least damaging to my people. The brain uh, formulates the options before we are conscious of them. Although sorting out the least harmful may take a little bit longer. Now this is all well and good in an ideal situation. It would be fantastic if we could just absorb all of these new values and observed responses before we needed them. Then they'd be ready to go. No pain, uh, lots of gain. However, we all know that life doesn't really work that way. Instead, our sin nature, which is at war with our joy-filled, said rich community, uh, and our, our community identity inevitably wins the day and we act out of alignment with the values of our community. In which case, the brain ups the ante and uses shame to improve our character. And if you are like me, even the word shame makes you recoil. We don't really like the word shame. I guess that for most of us, most of our experience with shame has been toxic and harmful. If you've been a Christ follower for long, you might see shame as a tool of the enemy of our souls, the devil. We prefer the word repentance. It, it's softer and it feels a little more righteous than shame. 
Repentance is what the Holy Spirit calls us to. Shame is what the devil uses to kick us when we're down, which means that shame is to be avoided. But things aren't quite that simple when it comes to the brain. So stick with me for a moment. The brain is hardwired with six emotion centers. Sadness, anger, fear, disgust, despair, and shame. If God has hardwired shame into our brains, then shame in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And in fact, neuroscience reveals that shame is actually necessary for character to change. Our brains have circuits dedicated to handling shame. And those shame circuits are tied to other circuits that control the formation of character. Shame is important to our socialization within our community. And without it, character will not change. We just don't understand the nature of shame, making it easy for the devil to co-opt it in order to keep us from becoming more like Jesus. But there are two types of shame, toxic shame and healthy shame. Toxic shame communicates the message you are bad and leaves you there in, in your badness, doing there in your badness with no way out. Toxic shame doesn't give you a solution for your shame. It just isolates us as it removes us from relationship. Toxic shame is connected to a left brain conscious, almost verbal, destructive message. You are stupid. You are worthless. You're in my way. Disgusting, fat, skinny, slow, clumsy. You will always be a loser. You will never be good enough. And if we validate that negative message, like, you're right, I'll never be good enough. We end up magnifying the shameful distress we feel. We give it more power. It's no wonder we hate the word shame. We don't like the way toxic shame makes us feel. But if we call it anything else, we risk bypassing the way God has hardwired us. Healthy shame is different. Healthy shame is a nonverbal, spontaneous reaction to a face that is not happy to be with me. Now let that sink in for a minute. If real joy is a spontaneous or instinctive reaction to a face that is happy to be with me, then healthy shame is the opposite of joy. We detect joy and shame the same way from facial cues and tone of voice. My right brain can tell from your face that I have lowered your joy. But unlike toxic shame, we can learn to be relational in healthy shame. Healthy shame doesn't leave us alone. A healthy shame message says, I love you but I believe you have forgotten who you are and stopped acting like yourself. So let me remind you how we respond in this situation. Our hesed helps us regulate the emotional energy of shame. Without hesed, shame pushes us to isolate and hide, which leads us into unhealthy shame. 
which makes it pretty easy to distinguish between toxic and healthy shame. If the shame leaves us alone in shame, it's toxic. Someone points out our failures and leaves us there with no path for reconciliation. So let's, let's go back to my mistake. I make a mistake. My dad yells at me. Is that toxic or healthy? This is the, the, this is the part where you participate. Is that toxic or healthy? Toxic. He just leaves me in my shame. My boss uses my mistake to elevate himself. Toxic or healthy? Yes, toxic. The relationship isn't affirmed and there's no way out. My roommate just laughs it off. Toxic or healthy? It's a little trickier, but it's toxic. Still toxic. I feel better about it, but there's still no way out. Didi's fictitious eye-rolling. Toxic. <laughs> For those of you online, there's peanut gallery happening over here. My, my new friend who tells me that my mistake is no big deal and then shows me how to fix it. Healthy. Of course it's healthy. Correcting someone using healthy shame is always affirmed through relationship. The relationship is more important than the problem. The relationship is addressed first before the problem. Once the security of the relationship is established, then the problem can be addressed. When we are correcting someone, we can affirm our group identity by using the word we instead of you to affirm our group identity and communicate that we're in this together, that I won't leave you alone in your shame. So the heart of my message in that case might be, I love you. Our relationship is not at risk, even though you messed up. You seem to have forgotten that we aren't the kind of people who, maybe just as an example, we aren't the kind of people who use our words as weapons. That's just not us. But we are the kind of people who use our words to speak life into others in every situation. So if you could do this one over, what would have been a better way to communicate what you were feeling? Say, am I making sense here? Healthy shame affirms the relationships, points out how I have not been acting like myself, and affirms who we really are, our group identity. Yes, I am being corrected while I am being, I am being invited back into my true identity. I still feel the shame of my failure, but I don't stay there long. I don't stew in it. I just know I don't want to do that again. I don't want to let you down. I forgot who I am for a moment, and I don't want to lower your joy again. You need that kind of shame to update your libraries. Without it, when we take away the healthy shame, we take away the motivation to change. You see, there is this lovely little process that happens in our brain just above our right ear that determines whether or not we are going to make a change. The brain only makes a change if the, if the problem makes it uncomfortable. It needs some kind of pain to motivate change. No pain, no change. Shame is that pain signal. 
Shame tells us that our character and behavior have become something that others want to avoid. We have negatively impacted someone else's joy and their face gives it away. And when shame is handled in a healthy relational way, shame aligns our character a little more with the character of Jesus. Now with all that said, if you still recoil when I use the word shame, I want to encourage you to take a deeper dive on your own to see if you can root out the toxic shame that keeps you from really being healthy. Toxic shame is never from God. And in the church, it often comes in the form of condemnation. And I don't know about you, but I've been in churches that get this wrong and end up doing damage in the name of love. But condemnation has no place in the life of Christ followers, period. Uh, Paul put it this way in Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And later in the chapter, he adds, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. So who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Paul was never afraid to provide correction when it was needed. But he clearly rejects toxic shame. And we are clearly to reject the giving and receiving of toxic shame. For the Christ follower, condemnation never comes from God, which makes it a tool of the enemy. And when we use it or even believe it when we're on the receiving end, we have forgotten who we are. But don't get condemnation confused with correction. Correction is our friend. God uses correction in joy-filled said to make us more like Jesus. When correction is delivered through said, it might still sting, but it's the kind of sting that makes you a better man or woman of God. Correction can be painful and loving at the same time. Remember, shame isn't the problem, just toxic shame. So if I were to put together a healthy group identity statement for correction, it would be this. We are a people who embrace correction, understanding that correction forms our character into the image of Jesus and there isn't anything more important for our lives. How else will we know what to do when we forget who we are? Jesus gave us many examples of this kind of healthy correction. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his followers out to the surrounding towns to heal and talk about the kingdom of God. And when they return, they are giddy, excited about what they just experienced. And in verse 17, it says, When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Now, most of us wouldn't see this as an opportunity to correct character, but Jesus always has his eye on the big picture. Yes, he told them. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. 
But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Notice that he didn't diminish their joy. He still validated their excitement, but he also recognized the temptation we all face when God is using us in powerful ways. And in this case, he wanted to correct them before they got too far off course. But in the face of success, it's easy to get more excited about the success than about knowing God. He's reminding them that we are a people who find our joy and security in our relationship with God, not our successes or our failures for that matter. He first affirmed their relationship by entering into their joy. Then he pointed out their character flaw before quickly affirming their group identity. We, we do not rejoice in our authority over spirits or in ministry success or in ministry growth or fame. Instead, we are a people who rejoice that God knows our names as he calls us his own. Now, later in the same chapter, he passes through Bethany. He and the gang are invited to dinner at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And while Mary and Martha are working on an impromptu dinner, Jesus starts to teach. And Mary sits down so she won't miss a word, which bugs Martha. Because now she's not only missing out on what Jesus is saying, she's doing all the work. Luke says this, But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, oh Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. <laughs> but the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. See, just like the correction we just saw, Jesus affirms their relationship. My dear Martha. Some translations say Martha, Martha. Either way, he was affirming his loving attachment to Martha. He is connecting with her, probably looking into her eyes. It's a lovingly calm gaze. And then he reminds her, and everyone else in the room, that there isn't anything more important than the kingdom of God. She had forgotten who she was, who they were as a group, and what they were all about. Notice the progression. There is joy on his face, the said reminder of their relationship as he reminds her of their group identity through correction. We are a people who seek first the kingdom of God, which would also describe us. We are a people who seek first the kingdom of God. And that means we must develop the kinds of skills that help us both give and receive correction. We are called to play a role in the spiritual formation of our people. It's not just the pastor's job. It's yours too. So for those of you who get a knot in the pit of their stomach when they think about having to correct someone, stop thinking of correction as confrontation and go back and watch our last series on harnessing the power of words. There are some really good tools in there. It's almost like we planned it on purpose. Don't think of it as confrontation. It's not. You are actually issuing an invitation. It's an invitation to remember who you are. 
You forgot for a moment. So let me remind you. In whatever Joyfield has said that you have decided to invest your life in, you are called to play a role in the character formation of your people. In fact, when you abdicate your role and just let bad behavior that should be corrected slide and get swept under the rug, you are robbing your people of an opportunity to update their libraries and become more like Jesus. But I think it's okay to work up to that part. Now, as we wrap up this series, let me just be honest with you and tell you that I'm still figuring out what all of this means for our community. This is so different than anything I've ever been taught, but it makes so much sense to me. I, I might stand up here every week and teach, but I'm still just like you. I'm a man on a journey to become the very best man of God that I can be. And I've had seasons where I felt like I was hitting my head against the wall with God. I've wandered around in deserts. I've been stuck. But as I look back at all of those seasons, I can clearly see that it wasn't what I knew that provided the breakthrough, finally. <laughs> it didn't come from the left side of my brain. It came from the right. So we're going to figure out what this means for our has said together. The pastors have been and will be talking about what this means for our community. The only thing I know for sure is that it begins with joy. So maybe we should all start there. If joy is the gateway to character formation, how can you up the joy level in your life? How can we increase our joy capacity? That's certainly easier if life is going the way you want it to. But we all know that life doesn't really work that way. We can't enjoy the mountaintop without the valleys, but we can have joy in either place and every place in between. Joy, because real joy can coexist with the six big emotions that our brains recognize. Sadness, fear, anger, shame, disgust, and despair. No matter what our situation, God has given us the capacity to experience joy, which leads to growth in community. So let's, let's start with joy. And since the entry ramp to joy is gratitude, let's live out the words of Paul from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. We are a people who give thanks in every situation. And when we do that, God will lead us from there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for joy. Thank you that we have the privilege of um, being a part of upping the joy in each other's lives. And we pray that we would be known as a people with great joy, who have attitudes of gratitude that lift others up. Father, teach us how to, how to experience healthy correction, both as givers and receivers of correction. 
May we learn to embrace correction, knowing that it just makes us a little more like Jesus. And there isn't anything more important than that for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, alone or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is evidence of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And before I sign off, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. I am so encouraged when you share something that has impacted you through this service with someone else. Until we meet again, may you experience great joy in the presence of Jesus. Music